Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Welcome to Move Forward with Dr. Kim Moss. I am your host, Dr. Kim Moss, and today I'm coming to you again from Studio B, and I have an extraordinary guest, someone that I have been waiting to meet in person for quite a long time, Dr. Chris E.W. Green. Now, Chris E.W. Green is Professor of, Bibli of Public Theology at Southeastern University, Lakeland, Florida, Director of St. Anthony Institute, and a teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he lives with his wife, Julie, and their sons, Clive and Emery. He is the author of a number of books, including Surprised by God, Sanctifying Interpretation, and All Things Beautiful. You can read and hear more of his work at C-E-W Green, G-R-E-E-N, no E at the end, C-E-W Green dot substack dot com and C-E-W Green dot com. Chris, welcome to Move Forward, Dr. Kim Moss. I am so excited about our conversation today. And, you know, I I met you through actually Bishop Mark Sharona. He yeah. introduced you on a conference and I heard you talking and I just I just sort of was captured by your love of theology. But actually what what made me wanting to get to know you is your willingness to explain them to me when I actually wrote in the little in the little chat and you answered my questions. And so yeah. thank you for that. I'm, I'm excited about our conversation today. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. All right. So I invited you here today to hear your insights on a particular passage of scripture. And that passage is Luke 7, 36 to 50. I have been really intrigued by this passage for a while. I want to read it uh, so that my audience can actually understand uh, where we're going. So this is about the sinful woman who's been forgiven. And uh, and so one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, hmm, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And then Jesus tells a parable of a, of a money lender and one owes a big debt, one owes a smaller debt. And at the end, he's, and they both debts were canceled. And he said, you know, who, who will love more? The one with the small debt who was canceled or large debt. And, and Jesus and Simon says, uh, probably the one with the big debt. And, and Jesus answers, yes, you've judged rightly. So then turning toward the women, he, woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wiped my feet with her hair and tears and wiped them with her. Oh, wiped my feet with her hair and tears. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. And so I wanted to ask you here, Chris, because this passage of scripture is really important to me. I feel like in this time we're in, you know, we've had a mass exodus of, of, from the church. We've had so many people leave. I hear about it all the time. I even, you know, I hear, especially young people tell me that, that, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with the institutional church. I'm a lover of the local church. And I think it's so important to be a part of a local community and, and uh, with pastors and shepherds and be disciple, all that kind of thing. However, I think that we are in a time when we have to relook at how we are doing church. And so I asked you here to talk more theologically about this passage of scripture. So because I, I think, and uh, I just, I know I have this in my notes, but it's like, how are we going to love them if we're blinded by our religion, by our religion? In my tribe, I want to start right here. In my tribe, um, 
which means that, you know, sort of charismatic maniacs that I am, um, you know, we talk often about a religious spirit. We like to talk about a religious spirit of this kind of spirit, right. Jezebel spirit, this kind of spirit, you know, and um, and it's not that I, I don't want to downplay that those things don't have a measure of truth. However, I think that the Pharisee in this passage of scripture he does have a religious spirit in sort of a way, but I don't think it's a demon, if you know what I mean. And so <laughs> to be blinded by your religion or be a blind guide, as Jesus called the Pharisees, um, does mean that there's something about our religion or how we believe that is blinding us. So can you talk to me about that for a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I do think in, in the bigger picture of the gospel of Luke, and then in some ways in Acts, which is, you know, follow up to the gospel of Luke. Jesus relationship with the Pharisees is, is a fascinating one, right? So the Pharisees, when they're associated with the priests and the scribes are always against Jesus in, in the gospel. But there are a few times when the Pharisees are pictured apart from the scribes and the, and the priests, and there's a little more openness. And so here you have a bit of openness in that the Pharisees invited Jesus into his house and there's no mention of the priests. And yet that, his imagination, the Pharisee's imagination, is still held captive, I think, by the way he has learned to be with the priests. Right. So what, what we're talking about here as religious spirit, I think, is in some ways what happens when our imaginations, our hearts, our desires, the way we see the world is trapped by certain systems of, of meaning and value that are religious and, and they give us a kind of control, a way of feeling as if we are in control, when, in fact, that's deceptive, right? And leads us to be, to be deceived and to miss what's right in front of us, which is why I think that image of blindness is, is so important to Luke, that the Pharisees are blind guides because they've been blinded by their association with this system of sacrifice and this system of control that religion seems to offer. I think that I think that's so important. And when I, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about how many times, because I think it works in in different ways as well. In in that, well, from different angles, I guess I would say, in that I have had so many young people tell me um, that you know one of the reasons they can't be in the local church is just because you know it's too religious, and so they label everything religious and. And while, as you have said, we in the church can be blinded by our system. And so then we don't really see, we don't recognize or become aware of what Jesus is doing or what Jesus is doing in a person or, or we judge them before we are able to uh, cooperate with what God is doing in their lives, so to speak. Yeah. Um, we're blind to them and what blind to, to Jesus in the situation. Um, but I think that some of our young people and uh, maybe even some of our old people, um, that label religious has become a system of its own. Oh, absolutely. In our time. That, absolutely right. Yeah, there's a way in which you can use your posture against religion religiously, right? Like you can. Right. It's all about getting control and it's all about having that feeling that that you've managed reality and you've got your handle on things. In fact, I, I think that's a way of thinking about what idolatry always is. It's an attempt to get a handle on things that are not ours to handle. It's an attempt to control what should be left in the hands of God. And, and maybe we could say this, like healthy religion is religion that helps us see, get in touch with, get in the flow of what God is doing for our neighbor. An unhealthy religion inhibits that it puts us in a position in which we think we're in control of what is happening or at least that we're on the side of god and we get to decide what is good for our neighbor instead of coming alongside them and participating in what god is doing we're managing it we're gatekeeping we're dictating what is and isn't allowed for our neighbor so i think i think it is that's that's a way in is to say there's healthy religion faithful religion and we need that but there's also unhealthy religion and we need to be able to discern the difference and in easy talk about religion, any kind of quick dismissal of anything that looks churchy as religious is itself a system of control. 
that has my, all my wheels turning <clears throat> because I have a, I also have a thing right now about idolatry, you know, and, uh, and I have, I haven't really ever thought of idolatry as a way to gain control. I've always thought of idolatry as um, something, you know, something I put my faith in um, other than God, you know, sure. but I guess that is control because if I'm putting my faith in my money, I put my faith in my education, I put my faith in my marital status or, or my country, you know, my, my uh, government or whatever, um, those things take on almost like savior status, but really is about trying to gain control and often about trying to, uh, to uh, avoid suffering of any, of any That's kind. Right. That's exactly right. It, it's an attempt to, to live a painless life, right? To have, to have privilege yeah. and fortune without any pain, but without taking up the cross. And, and that's yeah. one of the markers that it's, it's a spirit other than the spirit of Jesus. Wow. That's really good. So in this passage, um, because you said that uh, being control and that, well, the way to discern whether a good, good religion from bad religion, that's a simple terminology, mm -hmm. but uh, false and true is uh, how we, how we love our neighbor and join with God and what he's doing with our neighbor, which speaks of hospitality. And I've heard you talk of hospitality uh, before. And it's one of the things I wanted to talk about with you today. And um, because in this passage of scripture, I think it's so interesting from the very beginning. Um, it says, you know, he invited, he invited Jesus, the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. You know, Simon invites yes, Jesus right. to dinner and we think, oh, that's so hospitable. You've opened your door because I think in our in and, you know, OK, in again, in Pentecostal theology or let's just say in in the church, you know, our system, <laughs> we we have thought of hospitality as, you know, the gift of hospitality. I can remember as a young person first coming into the church, you know, and they made me take a gift test. Right. You know, yes, and I uh I didn't have a gift of hospitality, unfortunately, <laughs> but I think, but I actually think that I'm very hospitable, you know, Absolutely. Um, but I, but hospitality in my understanding at that time um, was like, was, was, you know, reduced to, I like to use that term reduced to, you know, just if I'm willing to open up my home, you yeah. know, and have people in or some people who really, if they had the gift of hospitality, the supernatural gift of hospitality, then they were the ones who went out on the street, got homeless people and brought them into their house, right, right. you know, and then, and so, you know, and, um, but I don't think, I don't think that's really what it means. And here I see, it looks like he's being hospitable. He's inviting Jesus, but we know that often dinners were teaching times. They were like, Absolutely. I feel like, you know, to use a common term, I feel like he was inviting Jesus because he was going to vet him. I agree. That's not necessarily hospitality. No, no. He's putting him on trial. And I think the best case scenario is he's, there's a curiosity in him, perhaps provoked by the spirit, but it's still mingled with a, a kind of skepticism and an attempt to put yeah. Jesus. I, I think you're right. He's vetting him. He's putting him on trial. And you can tell because he reaches a conclusion, right? In the story. If this man truly yes. were a prophet, he would have known. Yeah, because the context, the context of that passage of scripture is in, you know, we've just had like, so chapter seven, all we've had, we've had the centurion, you know, he meets the centurion and he, and centurion is certainly outside the covenant people, yes. you know, and, um, and Jesus remarks, that he's never seen faith like that, even in, in Israel. And which is, you know, a slight against his own people, really, you know, and then, and then after that, he, he raises the widow named son, but then, but then there's the part with John the Baptist, who's questioning, are you really the one? Because, because he's breaking down, he's scandalizing the system of understanding that, that John had about what the Messiah would look like and come and do, you know, he thought he would come and knock down Rome and, you know, take over the government and put Israel back on top. That's my way of my summary. And, uh, and Jesus wasn't going to do that. You know, he came to, and he's, and, and then he makes this strange comment about, you know, uh, wisdom, children, wisdom's children. And then the next thing we know, we've got the Pharisee supposed to be the wise guy, That's you know, right. the leader full of wisdom inviting just to vet. So then right after that, 
the woman comes in and she's, you know, and I love how it says, I, you know, I, scripture's so intentional, I think, you know, yeah. it says that she's the, a woman in the city, you know, a sinner. Later, you know, when he, when the Pharisee's talking about her, he says he would have known who's touching him a sinner, you know, and uh, so her sin comes before who, you know, and yeah. um, so I think that I think here too, he, he, he's not welcoming Jesus, but he's certainly not welcoming the sinner. Absolutely. And, and you can tell this again, first, let me say this, that the juxtaposition with the centurion is, is really important because the centurion doesn't even have to have Jesus come into his house. He says to, G, you know, while Jesus is on his way, he sends servants to say, just say the word, you don't have to come to the house. And that's more hospitable. He's recognizing Jesus need and Jesus authority and respecting Jesus time and is more hospitable than this Pharisee who's actually bringing Jesus into his house to vet him, as you said. But when he comes into the house, when Jesus comes into the house, the man does not show hospitality to him. I mean, he comes to the table and he's, he's sharing in the meal. Jesus is allowed to share in the meal, but his, his feet are not washed. He is not kissed. He's not welcomed the way he should have been welcomed. And so this Pharisee not only fails to see this woman rightly, he's already failed to see Jesus rightly. And his inability to show or unwillingness to show hospitality to Jesus, that is, do him, that and it may have very well been a test, right, to see about whether or not Jesus was a prophet. But regardless, he doesn't show hospitality to Jesus. And therefore, we know he's not going to show hospitality to this to this woman, this woman of the streets, the woman of the city who's known to be a sinner. And one more note on that. Sinner, of course, we know that sin is a category God has revealed to us, mm -hmm. but they're using sin as their own category. Right? So when they say sinner, they don't mean exactly what God has revealed to be sinful. They mean what they want it to mean within their system. So sinner is someone who's impure by their standards, not by God's. And that's what this story exposes, is that he's using a term God has revealed, sin, in a way he has, well, not just he alone, but the way the system has devised it so that it has a, they have a kind of control over who's in and who's out, who belongs, who doesn't belong, who is treated well, who's treated poorly. And he's more concerned, and this, this again, is a sign of bad religion, a sign of this dis taste for the love of neighbor that God calls us to is he is convinced that purity can be lost, but he doesn't believe that holiness can be awakened. He's more concerned about ritual purity than he is about the righting of the wrongs that have been done. And that's what, that's what religious systems, when they go wrong, that's what they do to us. They turn us into legalists. They turn us into judgmental people who are concerned more about what we can lose than what we should be giving. This man should have given Jesus hospitality. Instead, he's concerned about what's going to be taken away by this woman who's come to show Jesus the hospitality that the Pharisee himself should have shown. Wow. Ouch. <laughs> yes. I mean, that what you just said about his system and his lack of hospitality being closed. He could, he could see what was wrong with her, but he could see no opportunity to, for healing in her life. You know, that, whoo, that, yeah. Oh, wow. That really, that really makes me sad. And uh, so, so Chris, what is hospitality as Jesus sees it? Obviously it's not just opening my house, That's right. but it, but it has to do with an open heart, I think, and um, an open heart, not only to the Lord, but to, to you know, the sinner and uh, those that we would, would judge sinners. And um, so tell me a little bit more about that. Give me a, give me a more of a definition, I guess I'm looking for, mm. of hospitality uh, in the New Testament or according to Jesus. Yeah, so I think if we if we look at the Gospel of Luke again as as a whole, 
I think hospitality may be the primary thread that ties it all together. I mean, you see Jesus is constantly sharing table with people that others think he shouldn't share it with. And at the very end of the gospel, Luke 24, after the resurrection, the Emmaus disciples are headed home. Jesus appears to them on the road. They don't recognize him. They're kept from recognizing him. They are despondent, downcast. The conversation starts about why their hearts are broken. Jesus rebukes them and tells them, "Have you, you should have read the scriptures more carefully. And the only thing that saves them is their hospitality. They, even when Jesus is teaching them the scriptures, they still don't see. They don't recognize him yet. Their hearts are burning, but their eyes aren't open until they open their hearts to him and their house to him and allow him in. So I think hospitality in the Gospel of Luke is an openness to other people expecting God to be at work in those in their lives. Right. So hospitality is not just about my openness. It's opening myself up to what's happening in, in the life of my neighbor, trusting that God is at work there, recognizing that I'm not their savior. I'm not the one who, on, who's their, on whom their future depends. I'm merely coming alongside them. So one, one way of talking about this is midwifery. Right? I'm not the one who's bringing that baby to be. I'm just there to help give birth to it. Right, to help the person who's already pregnant with the life of God breathe until the moment of birth. And I think, so for, for Luke, hospitality is that kind of openness, the openness of our lives to what God is doing in the lives of our neighbors, especially those neighbors that everyone else is ready to cast off, those neighbors that we are tempted to regard as God forsaken. And this, this Pharisee is unwilling to be open in that way. He, he does not, there's no room in his heart for God to be working in the life of this woman. And he is, he's part of blindness for Luke in the gospel of Luke. It's not that you can't see anything at all. It's that you can only see what the enemy wants you to see, which he can see what's wrong or what he thinks is wrong. His categories have made it so that he can see the impurity, but he can't see the purity of God at work. He can't trust that the purity of God is more powerful, far more powerful than any impurity that religion has introduced or the breaking of religious rules can introduce. And that I think is, we need to recognize that blindness at work in ourselves, right? It's not that we can't see anything, but if all we ever see is what's wrong, what's, what's a threat to us, what seems to be inappropriate or unlawful, if that's all we ever see, then what comes up out of us is complaint and fear and judgment. Never cooperation with the mercy of God and cooperation with the generosity of God. Wow. Yes, I. it made me think of, uh, I was thinking about how in, uh, I, I don't know how this relates, but it just comes to my mind. Um, the book of Hebrews is like my favorite book of the Bible. And I, I don't know everything about it, but someday I'd like to talk to you about that too. Um, I'd like to talk to you about everything. Um, but at the end of Hebrews, you know, it says that Jesus, of course, Jesus died outside the camp. That's right. And, uh, and, and some of these people in Luke, they are considered outside the camp, you know. Absolutely. And so Jesus died for sinners outside the camp so that the, the outcasts, the unclean, the, you know, can come in. That's and right. that's what the kingdom is about, you know. And, uh, and I think about too, in, in the book of Luke, often I see, uh, I see that Jesus by his, by his purity, he, he makes people pure. Right. And so they're not catching, they don't seem to be catching that, you know, he, you're not supposed to touch the leper, you know, and they're supposed to go around the streets going unclean, unclean, you know, and the women, woman with the issue of blood, unclean, unclean, you know, and yet, and yet Jesus is not worried about touching them actually you know touching yeah. them and his his purity overrides their Absolutely. impurity and they have and they are more the pharisees seem more concerned about yeah about keeping their purity ritual purity and doesn't that also relate to the story of the good samaritan you know they pass Absolutely. by because I have to stay ritually pure because, you know, it's important for me to keep my job, my, my, to keep my, my, my labels and my titles and my, 
you know, my status at the, in the temple. And I'm, I'm being very sarcastic, of course. And I know that there's more to it than that. They really, they really believed all those things, these things, and they were taught that from the law. So I'm, I don't want to make it like they're not trying to serve God, but in their serving God, they do get stuck in their system. And then they can't see those that, that the Lord wants to help. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that parable Jesus tells seems harmless at first, right? It's just mm-hmm. you know, two people who are forgiven. Obviously, the one who's forgiven most, loves most, is most grateful. But what the Pharisee can't see is that he's the one who has the greater debt. He assumes, yes. oh, the woman, this this prostitute, she's the one with the greater debt. No, no, no. Your judgmentalism, your lack of openness to God, your lack of openness to God revealed in your lack of openness to this woman your refusal to participate with providence and caring for these people, like that's by far the greater sin. And the moment of salvation that's coming for him, hopefully this Pharisee, we don't know the end of his story, but hopefully at some point it dawns on him. I was the one with the greater debt, right? And, and she was lavishing Jesus because she was grateful, but how much more should I be lavishing him? Because he came into my house, even with me vetting him. You know, the hospitality here is Jesus making room inside in this man's life, this man's house for that woman so that that woman could provoke him to jealousy. So Jesus, it's a setup, right? This man is vetting Jesus, but Jesus is setting this man up. So let's talk more about the woman because it does say, behold a woman. That means we need to take a look. You know, that word behold, even in the Greek is not just, uh, a, a look. It's like, you know, pay attention here, Absolutely. pay attention because there's something important about to happen here. And so tell us about what, what's important about this woman. Yeah. So one is we don't know much about her. We don't know. We don't know her name. We don't know her story. We know that she's a sinner in the city. It's almost certain that it's some kind of prostitution. It's certainly some way of life that has made her a scandalous figure. She's probably, she's certainly ritually impure and she's has a way of making money of making her way in the world that causes her to be constantly ritually impure and to make her the kind of person that contaminates others. So there, there, the anxiety is about the contagion of sin in her. She's a sinner in that sense. And she intrudes, like she breaks in essentially to this moment and makes her way to Jesus. And it is absolutely a scandal. I mean, this would have been all over the evening news, right? That local prophet yeah. or local Pharisee invites a prophet into his house and scandalous woman you know, does this scandalous act. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to talk about it well because of how you know, we're so familiar with it that we've, we've taken the edge off of it. We've, we've taken the sting out of this story and yeah in part because we identify ourselves with her so quickly, you know, our worship is like her worship and we're adoring Jesus. But this was breathtakingly shocking, stunning act on her part to break in, intrude into this house, approach Jesus, get close enough to him that she can kiss his feet and weep and her tears fall on him. Take her hair down, which is absolutely read by people around her as an erotic act. So I think it's, it's worth stopping to take in, to look, to behold just how notorious this moment would become. And one of the reasons that Jesus earns the reputation he earns. I'm reminded of a, I'm reminded of a story. I don't know why that I, that I had heard uh, from one of my preacher friends and about uh, being at a meeting and uh, about to go up after the worship and and preach a sermon and a woman just gets up and starts doing cartwheels across the stage (laughs) and people are wigged out and of course you know in some charismatic circles that'd be like oh the spirit is here you know and um but everybody was really shocked because it was so inappropriate at the moment in time and uh and this woman afterwards insisted that you know that she felt like she heard the Lord ask her to do it. And then it turned out that someone in the, that was in the place had actually said to the Lord, you know, Lord, I don't think you're real. I think they were suicidal. And they said, you know, you'll have to do something extraordinary for me to think you're real. Something like somebody would do cartwheels across the stage. And of course, then that happened. So, you know, but 
that would be shocking, you know, but not quite shocking in the way that you're talking about, because right. um, what I'm understanding in this text is that they would have think that, you know, in our contemporary language, that she was coming on to Jesus, Absolutely. you know, like she was sexually coming on to Jesus. And of course, she's uh, a sexually immoral woman. And so, uh, you know, and and Jesus is just like, yeah, yeah, baby. OK, thanks. You know, kissing my feet and what? And um, and so, yeah, that would be really scandalous. It's completely not politically correct. Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not not in line with the culture yep. at all, because there was such strict moral culture about, uh, you know, in in that. And so, yeah. But but Chris, you know, God um, is not judging the way we judge things and obviously not the way that the pharisee because i think you mentioned to me before when we were talking before about how um in this moment nobody speaks like they're so shocked nobody speaks and uh but they're sure that jesus couldn't be a prophet if he is allowing this to happen absolutely and the not just the pharisee the other people in the room too later when jesus forgives her sins they wonder how he has the right to claim that Right. So their their posture is much like the Pharisees, which is they're putting Jesus on trial. And even after this happens, they're they're not convinced or convicted. They're scan they're scandalized and they're skeptical about who Jesus is. So they they not only put him on trial, they reach the wrong judgment about him, which is anticipating what's going to happen at the end of his life. I think those of us who were raised as I was in church and Christianized from the time I opened my eyes and made my first scream. We we can turn these these texts, this story, into something so bland, some something plain, yeah. without any salt in it, right? It it doesn't yeah. it doesn't speak to us. And we've domesticated Jesus. We've made Jesus and his actions into something that are easy to swallow. But we have to remember he got himself killed doing this. I mean he's still a young man who gets strung up outside the city with the worst of society because of acts like this right here what he allows to happen what he doesn't condemn i mean he he is dangerous and he's he's killed with thieves at the end because he's perceived to be a threat to the order of things he's perceived to be someone who's who's dangerous and in fact he is right because he yeah. is bringing the kingdom of god to bear I know you, yeah. you've written about this yourself, right? Yeah. The kingdom of God is coming and there is some violence yeah. to the ways it oh. disrupts our systems, the, the, the order of things that we've made. And this story, if we read it rightly, is a story of deep conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, between the yeah. holiness of God and our sense of ritual purity. And we, we have to be careful about who we identify ourselves with, right? We are not Jesus yeah. in the story, usually. And we're not even the woman in the story. <laughs> yeah. You know, conflict stories in the in, in scripture, I know that I mentioned to this to you earlier um, when we were talking about this passage. But in a, in a conflict, I, I, conflicts always serve to sort of wake you up, to sort of shake you awake. You know, yes. I think that the Lord allows us to uh, to come into conflict, whether it's conflict in our in our heart and understanding or conflict in circumstances, because we're supposed to see something. It's supposed to be an opportunity to see something new about Jesus, about ourselves, about the world that we live in, about the system that we're stuck in. And it becomes in in a way a mirror, you know, where we're supposed to ask the question, you know, yeah. we're supposed to ask the question. Am I blind here in this story? I would say, am I blind here? Because I see the, I see this Pharisee as a blind guide. I see him as he's blinded by his religious system. He can't see the woman. He can't see Jesus. He can't really see himself and, uh, and what Jesus really judging because her act of just abandoned worship, so abandoned that she, she doesn't even realize the public display of affection that is is solidifying her sinful reputation to the to those who are watching you know and scandalizing everyone in the room except jesus you know but he but he's so black he can't he can't see how 
that is supposed to scandalize his own understand concept of how the Lord loves people Absolutely. and how we are supposed to be hospitable to the sinner, you know, yeah. and, uh, and how she in this, you know, I just think when I look at this, I think she's become the saint and he's become the sinner really in the story. That's, Absolutely. that's what it seems like to me. I think that's exactly what it is. And it's, it's why I was saying in our last conversation last, last time, like he's the one with the greater death. Simon yeah. the Pharisee is the one with the greater death. And I think it's worth pointing out too, that he wants to test to see whether or not Jesus is a prophet. And yeah. he acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher. You know, he says, tell me teacher. He calls him. It's, it's a title of honor, but Jesus calls him by name. And mm-hmm. I do think Jesus is trying to get at his heart, right? That there's, there's a kind of wedge of grace. That's trying to break something open here. And he's supposed to be shaken by it. And we're supposed to be shaken by it. The language of Hebrews, everything that can be shaken, right, will be shaken. And the the kingdom that we're receiving, though, cannot be shaken. So I think we need to let these stories, this story in particular, shake us and, and shake loose all the things that need to be shaken loose, which are our own judgmentalism. We've talked about the Pharisee the Pharisees and this Pharisee, Simon in particular, in ways that other them make them the people that are always resistant to God. And we can't imagine that that's who we are because we don't know ourselves well, right? <laughs> Who's t- like th- That kind of awareness of God and self-awareness that the spirit brings about, it's easy to lose touch with that and to think that we're, we're never really like the Pharisees <laughs> or like this crowd in the room. But the sign that we are in fact like them is that we we don't feel the shock of what it is that God is doing. We're not shaken by it in any way. And I think good readings of scripture, precisely as we become more like God, precisely as we mature in the Lord, we start to feel more of the shock of it. Like, Jesus, what are you doing here? And and how do I respond to it rightly? Right. There's no there, there's more and more, I think, of the fear of the Lord in us if we're reading yeah. right. Yeah, I I think I think too that um <laughs> so we've talked about how Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He's he's coming for the sinner, you know. And so this in this story um even though the woman is the illustration but it's really about Simon and his heart and so in many ways, like you said, a wedge of grace, he's come to save this sinner. That's, you know, he, he Simon has an opportunity here. He's being presented and we through the story are being presented with an opportunity to um, to be saved, to to come into the kingdom, to really have our our system broken so that we can be open to really what what Christ wants to do in us, you know, and, uh, and I, so I think sometimes we, we think of, especially we who are in the church. Now I'm, I'm thinking about myself as a leader in the church, you know, I pastored for a while and other, other leaders that I know that we, we tend to think that, you know, Jesus is coming of course, to save, you know, those lost people that might wander into our church and sit in our pews. And of course it's true yet, Yet we forget that salvation is an ongoing daily. It's it's every day we are living, you know. Um, and so, where are we needing still salvation in our own life? Where is are those who are coming in? Where are they challenging our hearts and 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 um, and scandalizing our understandings of of G- of who Jesus is and what he what he sees, you know. I have to say, I got, I have to, t- I got to tell you this little story that came. Um, I, it keeps coming to my mind. And um, I was, I was in a, a foreign country and I was, I was preaching and I was becoming scandalized actually by some things that were going on that I felt were wrong before the Lord and this and that. And my heart was getting hardened and I was actually offended. And, um, you know, I was, and, and so I, 
I was wondering what I was even doing there. And Lord, what do you, what do you do? What do you want? What am I here for? Now I'm not out in the streets. I'm in a church. And so, you know, I'm, but I'm still, I'm, I'm obviously I'm judging. And so um, I'm sitting there and I'm wondering this. And all of a sudden um, I just, I just feel, I have this encounter in the language of, of uh, the, charismatic community, I have an encounter with the kindness of the Lord. I called it, this is what I, I term it because I don't know what else to call it. Um, but I was just suddenly overwhelmed with the kindness of the Lord for these people and all that they'd been through. And I realized in that moment that he was not looking at the wrongdoings the way I was. He was looking beyond that. And he saw the reasons why suddenly I had this knowing about about some things that had happened in their history that brought them to this moment and brought them to that place where they were behaving in this way. And he wasn't judging that as sin. He was wanting to heal what had happened that had wounded them that caused this behavior. And it reminds me of this story. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and so Jesus came for both of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he does say this woman's sins have been forgiven. So he's not downplaying the seriousness of her of her brokenness, right? Yeah. And it's precisely because he knows that brokenness and has healed it that she's grateful. Mm. Like this this act on her part is not an act of desperation, it's an act of adoration, right? She's not here begging for something. Something has happened already. She's giving thanks for it. I mean, part of what's astounding is we don't know what that is. We don't know how Jesus has worked in her life, right. why she has so overwhelmed with gratitude that she's breaking all the rules just to get close to him, to thank him. And notice she doesn't say anything. Like we don't hear her say anything. Other, we just see her tears. We, we mm -hmm. smell the ointment. We we watch what she does. And I think it's important to, to recognize there's always, always more. We're, we're only ever seeing the tip of the iceberg when we see people grieving and when we see people rejoicing, when, when they're weeping, we don't know why, not really. And, and when they're laughing, we don't know why, not really. And what, what your story points to is in that moment, you were seeing the tip of the iceberg and determining something you didn't really understand, right? Making judgments out of ignorance. You didn't really know what was mm -hmm. taking place. And judgmentalism is always tied to ignorance. It's always tied to what we don't know. And that's what we were saying last time about blindness the way the enemy blinds us is by allowing us to see something that's that's there, but it's such a small part of a much bigger picture. And so we arrest our attention on that small part and then draw conclusions that are that are wrong and that end up making us people who inhibit the work of God, who frustrate the spirit, who quench the spirit. And and we do it all convinced that we're actually on God's side, right? That God needs our, our defense. And this this is part of the power of the enemy like the devil is good at his job so to speak and he's good at his job because we're so we cooperate so easily with him right we we are so ready to jump to conclusions and to start to act as champions of on in god's defense when that's the last thing that's needed right and so part of what we need is just as the story tells us to look recognize you may be seeing something that's real. I mean, they are seeing this woman do a scandalous act, but they cannot see what they need to see, which is all the goodness of God that has overwhelmed her and healed her. I mean, part of the reason she's in this institution in the first place, one of the reasons she's on the streets in the city is because of the failures of the people around her. Her family has failed her. Now, who knows what happened? Does her father die? Does her father sell her into slavery? Is she taken and forced into slavery by some powerful business? We don't know how she ended up there, but she's a victim of other broken systems that this religious system won't tolerate and can't heal. Right. So she's been broken by the systems of the world, but the religious system can't heal her. Jesus can and, and has healed her. And that's what she's grateful for. And that's true of, everybody around us like god's work in our lives is exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think and when we're judging people without a sense of that without knowing god is already at work in this person's life in ways that we cannot imagine it hasn't entered into our heart to imagine we're always going to misjudge we're always going to misjudge 
So in the so toward the end of this passage, Jesus says this. Uh, he he talks about the parable and the if you know those who've been forgiven much love much or have much gratitude. You know those who've been forgiven little have little. This this worship, because this is what this woman, she's worshiping Jesus out of the gratitude of her heart. So, so abandoned in her worship, she doesn't even realize that she has done this, this scandalous thing that is being judged by others, you know, but, but her, her worship sort of, her worship in my mind judges, judges the, the system, you know, so I, I would say, um, I, I would say probably for my charismatic audience, I would say her her worship has stirred up the religious spirit and scandalized it, yes. you know, and um, so that you can see it. And um, and for our other parts of our audience who who don't have that language, we would just say that this the gratitude of this woman, the worship of this woman has exposed um, the religious system that the Pharisee and the people are caught in that caused them to misjudge her or misjudge what God is doing and misjudge Jesus because yeah. of it. I mean, we, I think we can't forget that we not only when we're stuck in those systems, when something, something really that's supposed to be so beautiful. I mean, that that's the thing, Chris, you know, is that it's so ugly to these people, but it's so beautiful to oh, Jesus. God. That's right. That's you know, I mean, it, it's so beautiful. This this woman throws herself at Jesus' feet. You know, wasn't it? David said, you know, Michael was was so scandalized that he would take everything out. I mean, he's like, oh, I'll be even more undignified yeah, than this. Exactly you know, because because yeah. because our 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 titles, our dignity, our edge, none of that matters when it comes to right. the worship of our of our savior who's done so much for us and so i know that we're we're getting toward the the last few minutes i wanted i wanted to let you speak about how you know gratitude and faith but seeing ourselves we're not so many of us we do identify with the we want to identify with the woman but this this passage we're supposed to identify ourselves we're supposed to compare ourselves in a different way would you talk to us about that right. and make an application for us yeah, so I think I love the word you use, exposed, because they think she's exposing herself when she takes down her hair, but she's actually exposing them and their entrapment in that system. And it is a revelation, right? It, it is it is the revelation of God's goodness. And I think we, we really need to come back to whether or not we are in love with Jesus or we are in love with Christianity as we've known it, right? Whether we want the way of his life or we want our way of life. And his coming will disrupt our way of life because he's going to draw people like this woman to him. And I think it's the reason her act of worship is so erotic is that her sin had been. And that is being healed in her. And that's how she's expressing it. What's happening there is pure. It's her body acting purely, perhaps for the first time in her life. And God is receiving it as such. But there was no room in the system, the religious system, the Pharisee is taking part in for that kind of healing to take place. And so God is going to make room. God is it's going to shake. The kingdom's coming is going to shake that world until there is room for this woman. And I, I think we need to we need to invite that, ask God to shake it, right? Insofar as we are tied up in systems that are keeping us from having room for the people who need to be healed, God break our systems down, right? Shake what can be shaken. And one one kind of example of this is I, I grew up saying and hearing people say when they would see lives that were really shattered or broken, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. And I know, I know what people are wanting to say. What I was wanting to say is it's 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 good to be grateful for the ways in which God has kept us safe and cared for us. But what what hit me recently is that inside of that statement, there but for the grace of God go I, is a distancing from that person's need. I'm I'm judging myself as superior to them, mm. as if God has somehow loved me better than 
God has loved them, or I've somehow responded better to God's love than they've responded. So in, in a weird way, that's a kind of gratitude that hasn't carried me into the heart of God. And, and it's simply made me feel better about myself in ways that have arrested my sanctification, arrested my becoming like God. And what I need to say is because of the grace of God, I'm called to this person. That is me. What is happening in that person's life matters because that that is my life. I'm bound to them in the Lord. I think real gratitude, the gratitude of the Spirit, doesn't distance us distance us from our neighbors. It draws us right alongside them and makes room for them in our lives. And that's hospitality. Oh yeah. Wow. I would yes, I am I am this woman. I am this sinner. And I am this Pharisee. I need to find myself in both of them. That my my sin is probably unique to me, yet not unique in the in in humanity. And uh, so we are all her, and we are all the Pharisee, and we need to find our way, uh, really, to the feet of Jesus. Absolutely. In gratitude for all He's done. Wow. Thank you so much, Chris, for being my guest. I, I have really enjoyed this talk and I look forward to many more talks with you. I'm already I'm already pre-inviting you for other talks about scripture. I think scripture is so important. For those of you who are listening, thank you for joining me today. That's it for today. We'll see you again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Move Forward with Dr. Kim Mawson every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Uh, see you next week. And remember... Never throw away your confidence. Keep moving forward. Thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, kimmoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, the Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find those books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward.